This is Real Estate Rookie episode 332. How much should I charge for a security deposit? The first thing that you need to do is know what you are allowed to charge per your state laws. A really, really great resource is avail.co. It will actually tell you what your state laws are. Does this only cover damages for the security deposit? So that's what you would put into your lease agreement. And one thing I highly recommend is putting into the lease agreement what somebody will be charged. So actually itemizing, like here is your checklist of things of how we want the apartment to come back from us. My name is Ashley Kerr, and I'm here with my co-host, Tony Robinson. And welcome to the Real Estate Rookie Podcast, where every week, twice a week, we bring you the inspiration, motivation, and stories you need to hear to kickstart your investing journey. And today we've got a rookie reply, which means we're taking questions from our rookie audience. And I say today's episode is a little Ashley heavy because we're, we're talking a lot about tenants and long-term rentals. Um, we talk a little bit about LLC structures and HELOCs, um, but lots of good information we're going to get into for you guys today. Yeah, we also talk about uh, what attorney you should use from which state when you're dealing with deeding properties, transferring title, or you know, creating your LLC and putting your properties under the LLC. So lots of great questions today. If you have a question that hasn't been answered yet and you want answered, please go to biggerpockets.com slash reply. All right. Now I want to give a shout out to someone by the username of De La Rogue. This person says exposure to realistic real estate. The show is great for people like me who work a full-time job, but want to learn more about investing. Real estate investing seemed overwhelming at first, but Ashley and Tony listening to them every single week helped me get comfortable with all the terms being thrown around and investing in general. I'm on the bigger pockets forums now and learning as much as I can before I execute my first deal. Thanks for all the tips, guys. So for all of our rookies that are listening, uh, we'd love to hear from you. Tell us your story uh, by leaving us a review on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, wherever it is that you're listening. But the more reviews we get, the more it helps the show grow. And the more the show grows, the more we can inspire folks just like De La Rogue. Uh, So do us a favor, leave that review. Now let's get in to your questions. Remember when you had to pay to get a Leeds phone number? It was like the dark ages. Until Deal Machine made skip tracing a thing of the past. Now, with your Deal Machine plan, you'll get unlimited access to phone numbers and contact information for no extra cost. That's right. Get high-quality, reliable information trusted by leading financial institutions, all fully compliant with the federal do-not-call list. Explore over 150 data points, including age, gender, marital status, occupation, and a ton more. Trust me, this is the data you need for off-market deals. With new filters, people flags, and color-coded phone numbers, lead management just got a ton easier. Ready to step up your investing game? Sign up for a Deal Machine plan today and gain immediate access to this unlimited treasure trove of contact information and phone numbers. Just head to dealmachine.com BP. Transform your lead generation and deal-making strategies with Deal Machine. Sign up today and start exploring the unlimited possibilities at dealmachine.com BP. Are current interest rates making you depressed about cash flow? What if it didn't have to be that way? Rent to Retirement has 2.99% seller financing available on turnkey properties. You heard that right. That's a seller financed 2.99% interest rate where the average cash flow is over $900 per month. They also have options where you can put as low as 5% down on multiple investment properties with no PMI. 
Rent to Retirement is the nation's leading turnkey investment company that understands what it takes to be successful in today's dynamic real estate market. Their reputation speaks for itself with more five star reviews than any other company on the Bigger Pockets website. Rent to Retirement offers fully turnkey properties that are newly built or renovated, leased and managed allowing you to invest with confidence in the markets that offer the best returns. To learn more, visit renttoretirement.com. That's renttoretirement.com. Or text REI to 33777. Again, text REI to 33777. This show is sponsored by Airbnb. Did you know that I turned one of my first homes into an Airbnb? It's true. And it even helped me get the extra income I needed to launch my real estate career. So if you want to try your hand at making even more income with your property, Airbnb is the place to be. Your home might be worth more than you think. Find out how much at Airbnb.com slash host. All right, guys. So today's first question comes from Gambalume Jesse. And uh, Gambalume, I hope I got the, the first name right there. But Gambalume's question is, hi, team, me again, question. If rent is payable in advance by the first day of the month, and the tenant doesn't do so, and five days later they want to move out, do you demand rent for the month along with the late fees? Um, so Ash, it's probably more of a, a you question. All of my quote unquote tenants pay me before they step foot in my property, so I don't have to deal with this as much. <laughs> um, but but how do you handle folks that, that want to leave? My, my assumption is that, you know, they still got to give you 30 days notice. Typically, that's what's going to be in your leases. You know, you can't just say, hey, I'm, I'm moving tomorrow. Um, but yeah, I guess curious, Ash, to hear how, how you handle those kind of situations. Okay. So for this in your lease agreement, there should be some clause that states if you don't give 30 day notice and you just randomly decide to move out that you, your security deposit is completely forfeited. Um, with this, yes, I would still, if they didn't give proper notice, according to their lease agreement, they would still owe, um, in lease agreements, you can see clauses too, where somebody will put in that, um, if you move out before your lease ends or you don't give proper notice, you are uh, liable to pay the rent on that property until somebody else moves in. And as the landlord, you have to actively try to market and get somebody into the property. Um, the hard part is trying to collect from that person, no matter what your lease agreement says about them terminating the lease early or not giving proper notice. Um it is very hard to collect from that person. So yes, you can still charge them for that month's rent um, unless you get somebody into the property right away. So say maybe day 10, you get somebody in, you could charge them for you know the first 10 days. But then since you already have somebody else in the property, unless it specifically says in your lease agreement that they if they move out early, they have to pay a full month's rent and you retain their secured deposit or whatever that may be. That has to be written out in your lease agreement. In this example, like let's say there is no clause about moving out early or not giving proper notice. The in this one, I would try to charge the tenant uh, for <laughs> moving, vacating early, um, and see what would happen if they would actually pay it. Uh, one thing you can do is you can, and a lot of uh, property management software is putting this into their systems now where you can actually send a tenant's information out for collections and they'll be able to, um, from there, the collection agency takes it and they call and they collect and 
you know, you may get the money, you may not, but also the collections agency takes a large percentage. They also have very uh, regiment rules as to was actually eligible for collection. So in the circumstance, they may say in your lease agreement, it doesn't say what the rule is for somebody terminating early. And we don't think that, you know, this is something we can actually collect on by law. Ash, let me, let me ask you this question because I actually don't know the answer to this, but um, if you had your tenants like banking information on file, you know, checking routing information or like debit card, credit card, um, if they violated your lease in some way, could you just like automatically bill their card? Is that like a thing that long-term landlords do? The property management company that I used to use, they actually would take um, the tenant's information for their auto withdrawal and they would set up on their end. So they would have the full account information, whether it's a credit card or a bank account. Uh, the software that I use, I do not see any of that. That is completely in the residence control. But um, one issue when I let the other property management company go and took back over, when we switched everyone over, the property management company never turned off everybody's online payments. So people's account had paid us, the new property manager, but also then they got uh, the money taken out of their banking account because the property management company never shut off that um, those payments. And it actually was a huge ordeal. And like, obviously people were really upset because they just double paid for their rent. And it's like, okay, how's it getting back? And then it was like a nightmare just figuring out, okay, who already paid the property management company and who didn't and things like that. But um, I don't, I don't like the responsibility or the aspect of me actually having that person's account information. I like it that it's a third party software that has, you know, security in place, you know, cybersecurity in place where that information is protected. So just like with tenant screening, if you are actually going to do your own tenant screening where you're going to collect the person's social security number, you're going to do all these different things, a lot of software company will actually do a a a check on you as in they like send someone to your office to make sure you have a lock on your door. You have a filing cabinet with a lock that your computer is encrypted, all these different things just for you to collect somebody's social security number. So with all of the internet things that go on and all the scams and everything today, I would suggest if you can avoid and this is one of those situations where you can use software and you can avoid actually collecting your tenant's bank information or credit card information. And, you know, somebody scams them. It could make you liable because, you know, they say, well, you don't have any kind of protection. You know, somebody could easily hack into your computer and get that information off of it. Things like that. But I, I, Tony, I did have a, a, a question for you, though, which I, it's more towards medium term rentals, but it's through Airbnb. So there's been a couple of times where I've had somebody saying for a long time, like three months, say, for example. And so Airbnb will collect one month at a time. So if somebody books longer than one month, they don't collect the full amount. Um, they can people can set up like payment plans almost where they're in the property for a month. And then, you know, month two, Airbnb will pull another payment from their credit card on file. I've gotten the notification that the Airbnb cannot collect from this person. And, you know, it doesn't say what it is, but it's always been like rectified within 24 hours. I get the email saying the person has paid 
But have you ever had anything like that happen or not? Because it's mostly short-term rentals and what would be your suggestion of what to do in that circumstance? If you do have somebody from Airbnb in the property, they've rented it for three months, month two comes and they don't pay and they're, you know, they shut off their credit card or whatever. And you know, Airbnb can't pull from it anymore. Yeah. Um, we've never had that issue because all of our properties are, are traditional true short term where folks are at most like during like the holidays, you might have someone stay like seven or 10 days, but never anything uh, beyond 30. If I, if I were in that situation where I had, a, you know, an Airbnb guest whose payment failed, I mean, obviously I I'd, I'd try and reach out to them first. Um, but if for whatever reason I, I couldn't get in contact with them, I feel like my next steps would be to try and get them to physically leave the property. So I might try and call the sheriff. So I might try and call the local PD, whoever I can to assist in getting them to get out. But then it gets kind of dicey and, you know, depending on what state you're in on, like if they've been there long enough, you know, say that they're on like a, whatever, a 90 day medium term rental stay or even like a six month and you're on like month four when they stop paying, then you kind of get dicey around like, Hey, what are your, what are your options? So, uh, my first move would be to, to try and get them to leave the property physically. And then if I can, I guess you got to start like an eviction process or something. Yeah. Yeah. Maybe, uh, then they'll start throwing out squatter laws. <laughs> yeah. And, and that's why, you know, I mean, we, we've had to call the, the sheriffs, uh, I think once or twice, uh, to like kind of help get people out on the short-term rental side. And typically by the time we like, but when we tell them, Hey, we just called the sheriffs, like it's time for you to go. Usually they just like leave on their own. Um, but we've never actually had to like physically remove someone from one of our properties before. So fingers crossed. I never have to, but yeah, I don't, yeah, I, I, I kind of be, uh, I guess guessing a little bit on, on what, what I'd be doing in that situation. Yeah. So with that, was that like during their stay and you had them like leave early because they were in a party or was it because it was like past their checkout and they weren't leaving? Uh, one of each, right? So we had one guest, I, I think I told the stories like these, these two crackheads that like actual literal drug users, <laughs> I don't say crackheads in like yeah. a funny yeah. way, but they were actually doing crack cocaine in our, in our property. Um, but we, we had to call them because they, um, we knew who they were. We, we wanted them to leave. Um, and then the second time was someone that just stayed like exceptionally late. Um, and you know, they weren't like super responsive and then, Oh, I'm sorry. You know, like you're overslept or something like that. So, um, those are the two situations, never for a party. Um, most of our properties are smaller, uh, especially the ones in Joshua Tree. So they're not even meant for a party. And then our cabins in Tennessee, like, I don't know, it's mostly like families and, you know, grandparents and grandkids. So we, we've never really had to do with parties too much. Okay. Our next question is from Alfonso. If I take out a HELOC on my primary residence, but I don't access any funds yet and just have it open, what happens if I decide to move? If I choose to access my line of credit, does the lender ask if it's still my primary residence? Will the lender close the account? Can someone clarify? Thanks in advance. This is a great question. And our friend Tyler Madden, who's been on the podcast before, has actually uh, talked about how he did this with his primary residence. He was getting ready to purchase a new house. And so he went and got a HELOC on his primary residence that he was going to keep a rental property. And he did this before he closed on his um, new house. And he actually used the same mortgage broker. I, I have a friend who's kind of in a, a, a situation where they have a duplex, they're house hacking, and they are buying a new primary. And they need the cash from the duplex to put towards their down payment. 
So I told them about what Tyler did as to he actually just got the line of credit and they could draw up the line of credit and they could use that for their down payment on the next property. And Tyler had said that he used the same mortgage broker to do his line of credit and to do his new mortgage. So this broker was fully aware that, you know, it wasn't going to be his primary anymore, but it, it was right there in that time, which was completely legal to go and get a line of credit. And so they worked out the closing. So he closed on the line of credit before he closed on the mortgage of his new property. And, um, you know, having that kind of timeline is important. And so I have a, a line of credit, but they're all on investment properties. I've never actually done one on my primary residence. Um, as far as I know, when you pull off a line of credit, it's usually like a form you fill out that you you just send into whoever your loan officer is and say, I want to, you know, take $20,000 and please put it into this bank account. And then you sign it um, or you get a checkbook. You get like a regular old checkbook and you can literally write money or write, write money, <laughs> write checks from your line of credit instead of like a bank account. So you could always ask for that option too, when you go and get the HELOC and then there's nobody asking you, um, if you have a renewal term, like say your HELOC is up in three years and they go to renew it, they may ask you then if that is still your primary, when they go to actually renew the line of credit. Yeah. And so a, a HELOC is a, like what you, what you'll hear some people refer to it as is like a second mortgage. Um, so in the same way that when I look up county records for a specific property, um, you can see who has a lien, who has a mortgage uh, for that property, right? Like Bank of America has a loan against 123 Main Street for Tony Robinson. Um, when you go out and get a HELOC, and I'm almost certain that this is correct, they'll also technically put a lien on your property as well. So say that you do go to sell Alfonso, and the same way that your title or escrow company or whatever kind of entity you're using in the state that you're in, they'll go and check to see what are all of the liens against this property. They'll see your primary residence um, and then they'll see your, I'm sorry, they'll see your uh, first mortgage that you use to purchase the property. Then they'll also see your second mortgage or your, or your uh, home equity line of credit. So they'll pay off both of those with the proceeds from the sell before they release any funds to you. So it can be like, hey, I'm going to go out and get this HELOC uh, against my primary. Then I'm going to turn around and sell it. And then like the the bank that gave the HELOC wouldn't be aware of that. Um, you know, your, your title escrow company will make sure that it gets paid off. So that, that's kind of how it works in the back end. Like when you, and, and that's, that's the whole reason why you use these, uh, third parties like title and escrow to make sure all the paperwork is good. Because say that you try to do this outside of title and escrow, there'll be no paper trail of this lien against the property. So, uh, the banks are going to want to make sure that they're protected. They'll have some kind of mortgage security document that you're sign signing that ties the debt they gave you to the actual property. Um, so to answer that first part of the question, uh, if you sold the property, your HELOC should get paid off during that sale process. And then you walk away with any proceeds there afterwards. Our next question is from Braylon Hurd. Hey rookies, I hope everyone is doing great. I'm closing in on renting my first property and with the current state of the world, it's stressing me out what I should charge as my security deposit and clauses I should implement to protect me as an owner. Everything in my property will be brand new and I put a lot of hard work and money into it. What do you charge for security deposits and does this only cover damages? Are you charging your charge first and last month's rent at the beginning of the lease? And if so, this is separate from the security deposit, correct? What service do you use to run background and credit checks on applicants? I have heard rent prop and my rental are good. Thoughts. Thanks for help in advance. 
Okay. So let's go back to the beginning and let's start there. How much should I charge for a security deposit? The first thing that you need to do is know what you are allowed to charge per your state laws. A really, really great resource is avail.co. Okay. It's, they're actually a property management software and they have, if you go to like, I think it's tools and resources. I'm trying to look right now. It will actually tell you what your state laws are by, um, for each state. So you click on your state and then you can go through and see what this, if there is a security deposit law, if there is, you have to charge a certain amount or not. So in New York state, you can only charge, um, equal to one month's rent. So if they're renting the unit for 750, you can only charge 750. You can't charge any more than that. You also in New York state cannot charge for last month's rent. So that's another thing that you should look for in your, your landlord laws. So here in New York state, when somebody moves in, you can charge them the first month's rent because they're moving right in. And then you can charge them security deposit equal to one month's rent. You cannot charge anything more and you cannot charge last month's rent. Okay. You can charge for pet fees, different things like that upfront that are non-refundable. So like we do a $300 non-refundable pet fee at move-in if you are bringing in a cat or a dog to the property. Let me just ask a few questions on that piece, right? So you said that you charge a $300 pet fee. Like how, how did you land on on $300? Uh, when I started as a property manager, it was $200. And for the first ever building that I managed, that's what they did. And then it was another like $10 per month. And- I quickly realized that was like not really enough to cover some of the wear and tear that pets did and that people were actually willing to pay more. So over the years, it's just increased to 300 and now it's, so it's $300 no matter how many pets you have. So if you have a cat and a dog, it's $300 and then it's $30 per month per a pet. So if you have two dogs, it's 60. If you have two dogs, one cat, it's 90, but we do cap it at three pets. Um, and then, you know, for some properties, it's even less than that. But um, then also you have to know like what the the town codes are too. like your town may even cap how many pets that somebody can actually have um, living in a household, too. Are, is there any level of like uh, competitive research that you're doing to gauge uh, either like the pet deposit or even just like the general security deposits, or are you just kind of going based off your knowledge of, of your own properties? Well, the security deposit, no matter what, for everybody in New York state has to be one month's rent. Oh, so it can't be less or more. I mean, it could be less, but I've never, ever seen anybody charging less ever. That is 100% like the going rate is one month's rent. Yeah. And then, um, as far as the pet fees, um, I haven't done a ton of um, research on that to, to be honest, but we've never had anybody say, no, never mind, we're not going to rent it. But I, I, you know, every once in a while, I'll look at, you know, what's listed in the area. And I mean, recently it's very, it's actually very hard to find listings, um, in the air because apartments are just going so fast, but, um, usually around the 200 to 300 mark is what I've seen. Um, in there. Some, I mean, before I've seen even like $500, but then there's no 
monthly additional fee too. So there's a change in what the upfront fee is and then what the monthly fee is. And a lot of times it's easier to have a higher monthly fee because that first upfront fee, it's sometimes it's hard for somebody to come up with the first month's rent, the security deposit, and that large chunk of money for the pet fee too. Gotcha. When Bigger Pockets started podcasting, no one thought we needed a store, but then books, so many books, best selling books, rookie books, partnership books. We needed the best real estate bookstore ever, so we chose Shopify. <laughs> Shopify is the global commerce platform that helps you sell at every stage of your business, from the launch stage to the first order stage to the did we just sell out the whole store stage? Shopify is there to help you grow. Whether you're selling real estate books or retro clothing, Shopify's platform helps you sell everywhere, online or in person. Now, speaking of online, did you know Shopify has the internet's best converting checkout, up to 36% better than other leading commerce platforms? And no matter how big you grow, Shopify gives you everything you need to take control of your business. And that's why we chose Shopify for the Bigger Pockets bookstore. So sign up for a $1 per month trial at shopify.com slash BP rookie, all lowercase. Again, go to shopify.com slash BP rookie now to grow your business, no matter what stage you're in shopify.com slash BP rookie. You're trying to close on your next rental. So why is your insurance company dragging its feet? With long lead times and never-ending paper forms, it's no wonder it takes forever to finally get a policy. Modern investors deserve better. They deserve Steadily.com. At Steadily.com, you'll get fast, affordable landlord insurance available online 24-7 in just a few clicks. You can even get next-day coverage, which takes just minutes, by the way, to obtain. And you can do it all from your phone. Steadily was founded by landlords who created insurance products tailored to the unique needs of this industry. It's their sole focus, and that's why landlords nationwide consistently rate them 4.8 out of 5 stars. So whether you've got a single family, short-term, or multifamily portfolio, Steadily.com can secure the best coverage at the best price to protect your properties. Discover how Steadily can save you both time and money on your rental property insurance. Visit Steadily.com for a commitment-free quote tailored to your needs today. Rookies, 2024 is the year to start protecting your rental properties with an LLC. But you don't have to do all the paperwork and filing yourself. Corporate Direct is your professional and affordable option for getting your LLC done right. They handle the state filings, draft your operating agreement, and act as your registered agent. They'll even help you comply with the Corporate Transparency Act, a new federal disclosure law affecting every real estate investor. Corporate Direct is a family business founded by attorney, author, and rich dad advisor Garrett Sutton over 35 years ago. Now, his son Ted is a licensed attorney working with him. Together, they've helped thousands of real estate investors form and maintain their LLCs and protect their assets. If you're trying to build a real estate portfolio, do not skip the LLC. Head over to corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets to schedule a free 15-minute consultation with an incorporating specialist. Mention Real Estate Rookie and get a $100 discount on your formation. That's corporatedirect.com slash biggerpockets. Okay, so let's see. The next question was, um, does this only cover damages for the security deposit? So that's what you would put into your lease agreement. And one thing I highly recommend is putting into the lease agreement what 
somebody will be charged. So actually itemizing, like here is your checklist of things of how we want the apartment to come back from us, come back to us when you move out. So it's, you know, room swept. It's the fridge is cleaned out. The oven is clean. Uh, you know, there's no holes in the walls. And then you start putting, you know, if we need to pay our cleaner to clean the oven, it's a $20 charge. If we have to have somebody clean the fridge, it's $10. You itemize what those cleaning charges will be and do the same for any repairs that are, you know, the tenant's responsibility. So, you know, if there's a hole in the the drywall, what's going to be the charge for something like that? If, um, you know, the, the faucet is ripped off or, you know, there's other damage that can be done. There's a, you know, tears in the rug. I once had a tenant that cut a piece of the rug out of the closet and then put it where his dog had ripped up the carpet. Like we wouldn't notice that he put a patch in the, in the carpet. And um, you got to give him points for being creative, though. That's that's funny. So try to itemize everything specifically that they will be charged for. In going back to New York State, so in New York State, you actually have to offer your tenants a pre-move out inspection two weeks before they actually are moving out of the property. So they give their 30-day notice. You send them a, a letter saying, hey, you are entitled to a two-week pre-move out inspection. You can opt out of it if you don't want it, but it is here. And the purpose of it is so that you can show tenants, you will be charged for this, you'll be charged for this. And it gives them two weeks to go ahead and repair it themselves. And I say that with air quotes or to hire a contractor to go ahead and do the repairs before their move out inspection. Um, so, you know, one downside to that is like tenants will go and try to make the repairs themselves. And it just ends up being like even worse than what it was. But this is something by law you have to offer to let them know. And then other times it turns out great. The apartment is turnkey and ready to go when they move out and you can get it rented right away. So to wrap it up, make sure you're itemizing what the charges for a security deposit could be as far as using it for them to cover, you know, rent that was unpaid. Be very careful with how you word that in your lease agreement because you don't want a tenant to give a notice that, they're moving out in 30 days and they just say, you know what, we're not paying last month's rent. Just put the security deposit towards it. Well, now you don't have a security deposit to cover any damage. So usually in our leases, we put the security deposit cannot be used as last month's rent. And then obviously if they don't pay and the apartment is perfect condition, we will apply the security deposit to that last month's rent. But you want to make sure you have that security deposit available for damages. So try to get them to pay any rent that they are that's due before they move out. Okay. Next part of this question. <laughs> Tony, I feel like these are all geared towards me. <laughs> yeah. What service do you use to run background and credit checks on applicants? So pretty much any property management software will have this integrated into their software that you can use. Uh, tenantreports.com is one that's separate from any kind of at property management software. So you can just go in there and you could screen, use that to screen your tenants. Um, but then if you use Appfolio, Buildium, Aval.co, RentReady, um, they all have background and credit screening services built right into them that you can use. Um, as far as the rent prep and my rental, I've been never used those ones. So I'm not sure, but I'm sure they're all pretty similar too. Yeah. And that's just one thing to add, right? Like, like it, it I know in California, um, 
you know, this is from the very brief period of time that I worked at a, a property management company here after college. Um, there were even, I think, like limitations on what kind of things could disqualify someone versus something else. Like, I guess, is there any information that you can use in someone's credit report, uh, background check, et cetera, to disqualify them from being a tenant? Or are there kind of certain things that are protected that you can't use? How does it work in, in New York? And I'm sure it kind of varies from state to state. Yeah, it does vary from state to state. Like in New York state, you can't deny someone because they have an eviction on their record. Like that can't be the sole reason, which sounds ridiculous, I know. But um, yeah, there's definitely different things. And then there's also fair housing laws across the board where you can't, um, you know, deny someone that, you know, maybe they have the same exact everything, but one person has a 700 credit score and the other person has a 550 and you end up going with the person that's 550. Okay. Then the next time, which I don't know why you would do that, but just say you do that person that's 550. Then the next time you rent, the, you know, as very, the similar unit, whatever, maybe it's the upstairs or something, you deny someone who has the 550 or whatever. Like you have to be very consistent as to what your criteria is. So we have a checklist and it's baked right into our software where this is our minimum um, credit score. This is our minimum debt to income. You have to make at least three times of what the rental income is, or the yeah the rent is for the month. So having that all listed out to kind of protect you from you know fair housing laws that you are being very fair and not discriminating when you're screening tenants, and that would be like the biggest issue. There are so many free resources to know what your landlord laws are. The Avail.co I mentioned earlier. But also if you go to your local housing authority, so even if you just Google Buffalo, New York, housing authority, some will come up. So homeny.gov is one that's in New York State. Um, Belmonthousing.org is the actual Section 8 voucher association for Buffalo. So a lot of times they have free classes, they have handbooks, or the classes are like $10 or very low cost. And since COVID, they do a lot of them virtual now. You don't even have to go to them in person, but they're a wealth of knowledge. They're usually, you know, an hour long and you just get like, here's what you need to know to be a landlord in your state. Yeah. When I worked at that property or they weren't, they were an all in one house. But anyway, they, they were like one of the largest apartment complex owners, like in this little pocket of California that I'm in. And, um, during our initial training process, they talked about what you said, um, about like the fair housing and all this stuff. And they said that there were actually people out there uh, like, I don't know if these people were, were attorneys or just like professional tenants, but they would basically look for, uh, these big apartment complexes that were violating some of these like fair housing laws and just you know, literally just trying to, to apply, not even with the goal of getting the apartment, but just to try and catch some of these bigger, uh, apartment complexes and companies like red handed. So as the leasing agent, we had no discretion over approvals. We would literally just take all the information the person put into their application, key it into the whatever software that we were using, and it would spit out uh, either a yes or a no. And we, we, you know, once it happened, we had no control over trying to fluff the numbers or change this or make it easier. It was all automated um, with no human interaction outside of us just keying in the information. Okay. Mantas has a question about an LLC. Can you hire a real estate attorney in order to place your properties under an already established LLC? 
does the attorney need to be located in the same state as the property? For example, if my property is in Oregon, does my real estate attorney have to be in Oregon, even though I currently live in Maryland? Or could I do it with a Maryland real estate attorney? Much appreciated. So what this question, first let's address like what it means to actually place properties under an already established LLC. So you've already created your LLC, you've filed the documents for it, and it's an operating company, okay? And you want to put your properties in this LLC so that they are no longer owned by you personally, and they are now owned by the LLC, that entity. So in order to do that, you have to change the title. You have to change the deed of the property to state that the owner is the LLC, and now they are under the LLC. So in order to do that, usually you'd hire an attorney to go ahead and take do a quick claim deed is what I've done and deed it from your name to your LLC. And there's no title work or anything done because you were the previous owner and now it's going into an LLC that you own too and you you know already had title work done when you purchased the property and if you as the owner didn't change anything then there's no reason to go ahead and you know do a new survey and to do the title work again so it's just called a quick claim deed. Um as far as having that attorney do it in the state that the properties are in or the state that you live in. Um, another question I would ask is what state is the LLC in? So is the LLC the same as your properties or is the LLC the same as your where you live too? So Tony, I don't I honestly don't know the answer to this question as to where the attorney has to be from. I think the answer is that it, it doesn't even necessarily have to be an attorney. Right. And, and mm-hmm. yeah, I've, I've filed some of these changes myself <laughs> just because you can just walk into the county and say, Hey, I need to update the deed for my property. What paperwork do I need? And I know here in California, or at least in the county that I live in, uh, I need what's called a, um, PCOR form, which is like primary change of ownership form. Um, and then I also need to update the, the grant deed. And as long as I fill out those two pieces of paperwork and I get them notarized, I can myself turn those pieces of, of paperwork in. Um, I've had my attorney do it for me here in California. Uh, I just had my escrow company do it for me here in California. So I've, I've had three different types of folks, um, you know, kind of manage that process for me. And only one of them was, a was an actual attorney. So I think the, the question is like, does it even have to be an attorney? Like, could you just go to the county yourself and fill that paperwork out? Um, but I, I would think as long as the attorney is, um, at least versed in kind of what the correct paper trail is for your state, for your county, for your city, it doesn't really matter where they're at or, or where they're located. Yeah. It, and I think that right there is the key point is to maybe that the only reason you want an attorney that's in the state where the properties are is because the actual work to put them into the LLC is to do the deed process, do that little bit of um, title transfer. And so just having an attorney that already knows how to do it in that state actually might be way cheaper too than hiring an attorney where you live and them like just figuring out that process, maybe just an extra step that, you know, they'll bill you for that. <laughs> yeah. But Ash, let me, let me ask you, cause like everything has to be done through attorneys in, in New York. So do you have to hire an attorney to fill out like change of ownership paperwork or could you do it like through a, like, could some, could anyone do it? I, I, I honestly don't know because I've just always had my attorney do it, but it's not, there's nothing on the paperwork that says my attorney information on it. It's 
you know, the seller's name, the owner's name, the property information, um, the description. So like if you already have the existing deed, um, I think you can probably just go right down to the county clerk office and file that yourself to, to change the title. Yeah. Last question we have here is from Carrie Molina. I just purchased a multifamily home and one of the units is going to be available this month. How do you balance upgrading with just renting it out quickly? Should you do your upgrading in the beginning or try to recoup some of your down payment first? Trying to see if I should upgrade this kitchen and bathroom and then raise the rent or just rent it out right away to get some reserves. If I renovate, any recommendations for that ugly bathroom grout? I might be able to raise rent only $75 to $100 after renovations. Thanks in advance. So I'll tell you a little funny story about that ugly grout. I actually... Bathroom grout. Yeah. Yeah. The I did a property over COVID with my son. He was, I think, six at the time. And so we, me and him rehabbed the whole property. And one thing that was not in the budget was in the kitchen, the backsplash to redo it. Like the tile was in great shape, but it just like had these gross, like yellowish grout lines throughout like the, the tile and the backsplash. And so I actually ordered, I'm pretty sure it was on Amazon, like a grout pen. And it was a, almost like a, a, a like white a tide marker. pen or something. Oh yeah. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Tide. It was like a Tide pen, but it was like white out. And we just went along and we did that along all of the tile lines to make them white. And it actually turned out so beautiful. And it was like way more cost effective than actually going in and, you know, ripping out all the tile and putting it back in. But, um, that actually worked really well. So it, 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 depends, I guess, as to, you know, how extensive maybe it is and how you want to do where this was not, um, an area where we were, you know, doing really nice upgrades in the property because we just couldn't get that much rent for it. So there was a little DIY hacks that we did in the property to still make it look really nice, but not going over budget where we couldn't recoup what we could get in rent for it. So with this one, let's see, should you do the upgrading first or rent it out first. Tony, what do you think? What would your answer be? I mean, I, I always want to try and get the the rents, right? Like, especially if the unit is vacant. Um, in my mind, it makes sense to go ahead and do those upgrades now. Um, still, to Ashley's point, you don't want to over upgrade, right? And, and invest more money into the property that uh, then you'll be able to get out as rent. But if the property is vacant, uh, use that as an opportunity to increase those rents. Even if it's only a hundred bucks, like if you're able to start doing that across, we don't know how many units it is, but say you've got like a small multifamily with like four units, you know, four times 100, it's an extra 400 bucks per month. You'd be able to pull in by doing those as, as each unit turns. Um, so assuming you have the capital, I would prefer to do it now as opposed to waiting. But what, what's your approach, Ash? I would just say run the numbers. And look at almost what your cash on cash return is based off getting $75 to $100 more. So if you're going to be dumping, you know, $30,000 into renovating the, what was it, the kitchen and the bathroom, then only getting $75 to $100 more might not be worth it for you. But, you know, if it's only going to cost you a couple thousand dollars to do these simple things that will add that $100 value in rent, then yes, go ahead. So I think take a look at the numbers 
and if they make sense or if you're actually getting better value of keeping it at what it is now and not even doing the renovations. Okay. Well, thank you guys so much for joining us for this week's Rookie Reply. If you have a question that you would like answered, you can go to biggerpockets.com slash reply and put your question in there. You're always welcome to leave your questions in the Real Estate Rookie Facebook group, or you can send us a DM on Instagram at Wealth From Rentals or at Tony J. Robinson. Thank you guys so much for listening. And we will be back on Wednesday with a guest. The market is changing and finding your way can be tricky. Rates shift, headlines whirl, but your goal hasn't changed. You want financial freedom. And the best investors know it's not about timing the market. It's about time in the market. If you're ready to get into the real estate investing game or take your game to the next level, finding an investor-friendly agent is your next step. With BiggerPockets Agent Finder, you can find the right agent in minutes. Just head to biggerpockets.com deals. Enter a few details about what and where you want to buy and boom, instantly match with an investor-friendly agent who fits the bill. These local market experts can help you navigate the neighborhoods, analyze the numbers, and take action with confidence once and for all. There's free resources only available at biggerpockets.com deals. Get an agent, get the deal, and get closer to financial freedom at biggerpockets.com deals. That's biggerpockets.com slash deals to find your investor-friendly agent today. The content of this podcast is for informational purposes only. Past performance is not indicative of future results, and all host and participant opinions are their own. Investment in any asset, real estate included, involves risk. Use your best judgment and consult with qualified advisors before investing. Only risk capital you can afford to lose. Bigger Pockets LLC disclaims all liability for direct, indirect, consequential, or other damages arising from reliance upon information presented in this podcast.